So before we get to our passage, um, you may have noticed there was breakfast out in the lobby area um, before you came in, and I am being told by Danny that there is still breakfast available out there, and there is no shame in getting up right now and going back and getting some. So, Or you can wait till afterwards, but either way is fine. We will not judge you if you stand up and go get some now. Um, this is a good point to just remind everyone here of why it is that we study the Bible the way we do here at Woodhaven, why I preach the way I do. Um, it's, it's not random. It's built on theological convictions. We believe that God spoke, the God of the universe, the creator of everything spoke and that we have the words and the message that he spoke to us What he has revealed about himself, we have that in the Bible, that that's what this is. It is a letter from the God of the universe to us telling us about who he is and about the redemption that has come to us through Jesus Christ. So we believe we have that in the Bible. That's the foundational belief that drives everything that we do. So because of that reality, we want to understand this book as clearly as possible. We want to study this book. We want to devote ourselves to this book so that we know exactly what God said to us and what he intended to say to us. Okay, there's nothing more important than that for us. So because of that, because God spoke and because we have it and we want to understand it, therefore we go to this book and we study it in context. As we talked about this morning in Sunday school, we read it in context, we look at the surrounding verses to what we're studying, we look at the books, we look at the whole message of the Bible, and we want to know what God said so that we can live as we're supposed to and so that we can know Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself to us here so that we can have redemption that is found in him through his work, okay? So that's, that's the bottom line. So there's a reason that we slowly work our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we study this book 12 verses at a time or three verses at a time or 15 verses at a time or whatever it is, because we want to know what God said to us. And when we do that, it brings us to passages like we're going to encounter today in Mark chapter 10. So you can open there, Mark chapter 10. And I would just ask you to bear with me through this whole, I'm not, that's not, it's not going to be boring. Hopefully I'm just saying, Bear with me through this whole text because um, this is significant. And this is one of those things that maybe we wouldn't address clearly if we didn't understand that God spoke. We want to understand his word and we're preaching through his word the way we do. Okay. Um, So the topic this morning that we're going to address is marriage and divorce from Mark chapter 10. So you can open up there, Mark 10, 1 through 12. And as you're opening there, um, as I was thinking through this this week, I just remember this man at our church in Virginia uh, that I got to know. Uh, his name is Jim, and he lost his wife just a few years ago, and they had been married for something like 60 years. And Jim was a college professor. He had been. He was retired, and uh, he's just a very quiet, um, professorial guy, you know, uh, academic, and uh, just very sweet man, very quiet, and uh, he worked all those years as a college professor. And it was funny because his wife was anything but quiet. Um, she was the polar opposite of him. She was the life of the party. Um, she was loud. She had this performer's flair to her. And uh, 
once his wife died, her name was Helen, um, I would take Jim to lunch and, you know, he's lonely living by himself. And so I'd take him to lunch and just try to spend some time with him. And uh, I loved doing that because as I would spend time with Jim, it was obvious that he adored his wife. After 60 years, there was this sparkle in his eye and this joy in his face and in his voice. And he just thought she was something else. And she was, he thought she was drama. He thought she was hilarious. She was loud. She, she was great. And his, she was talented. He would talk about the music that she would sing. And Jim just adored her, thought she was wonderful. And I love to hear him talk about her in that way after all of those years, all of those opportunities to get on each other's nerves. He honestly believed and thought she made him a better person together. And so he missed her, and and it was just a sweet time to be with Jim. And as I thought about that, there are very few things in life that I appreciate and value more than a couple who has been together for 40, 50, 60-plus years. Uh, I love to see that um, here at Woodhaven, when a couple's been together for a very, very long time, and when they've been together, and they obviously still like each other. There's clearly inside jokes between them. They look at each other in a certain way. I love to see that. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's grace. And that's exactly how God intends it to be. And it's, a, it's an incredible gift to God to us. Marriage is. It's a gift that God has given us. And the amazing thing about it is nothing else in life can build you up like a marriage that is built on Scripture and we're the couple is devoted to one another, love the Lord and love each other. Nothing else can build you up, can edify you in that, quite that way. And on the flip side of it, as many of you know, nothing else can destroy you in quite the same way that marriage can. It is the most important earthly relationship that you will enter in this life. And having said that, that's why we have to think about this, about marriage, when we think about discipleship. You have to connect your married life to your pursuit of Jesus Christ and to your following of him. And that's what we see in Mark chapter 10. That's why we're talking about, that's why Jesus is talking about marriage here and why Mark put this at this point in the gospel of Mark. So we've been following Jesus, remember? We've been following him from north of Israel and he's making a journey with his disciples and they're heading south to ultimately go to Jerusalem where he will die. And on this journey that they're taking together from chapter eight, the end of chapter eight, all the way through chapter 10, Jesus is teaching and instructing his disciples on what it means to be his follower. And he's telling them, I am going to Jerusalem to die, to suffer, to be rejected And my work has implications for your pursuit of me, for you being a follower of me. And so the lesson for us is Christ's work, his sacrifice, his death has massive implications for how we are to live in every area of our lives, including this most fundamental and important relationship of marriage. And one of the things that we've seen over and over again is that kingdom followers, followers who pursue Jesus Christ and his kingdom have an entirely different perspective on nearly everything than the culture around them. They think differently. They view things differently than the world around them. An example, the culture measures greatness by how many people serve you. 
Jesus measures greatness in his kingdom by how many people you serve. How many people you sacrificially love and give yourself and your life and your time for. And so in our passage today in Mark 10, we're going to learn how Christ's followers approach marriage. And it's in great contrast to the culture of his day. Even the religious culture of his day, it's significantly different than that. And if you and I aren't careful, if we just sort of exist in the culture and we don't think intentionally about marriage and about what the Bible teaches about marriage, then we will adopt the cultural mentality of marriage and how important it is and God's perspective on it. We'll, we'll adopt that rather than God's perspective on marriage. And so we have to actively and intentionally work to cultivate the Bible's perspective on this topic. And that's what we're going to try to do this morning as we get to this passage. So today we're going to see three convictions that separate a disciple's perspective on marriage from the culture's. So three convictions that separate a disciple's perspective on marriage from the culture's. All right. The first one of these. The disciples, disciples of Jesus recognize the reason for divorce. Now, I started, started talking about marriage, and now we all of a sudden the first point has primarily to do with divorce. And the reason for that is because you can tell a lot about a society, about a culture's understanding of marriage by understanding their perspective on divorce. What does their perspective on divorce say about marriage? And that's what we get here when we start to talk about the Pharisees and the Jewish culture of the day. And we see that contrasted with Christ's understanding of of marriage here and divorce. So last couple of weeks, all the way back to chapter 9 and verse 33, Jesus and his disciples have been in Capernaum. All right, remember that? They've been in Capernaum right around the Sea of Galilee. We've seen several different conversations taking place, and Jesus has been pressing one principle on the disciples. And what we're going to see today is an outworking, again, of that principle. And that principle is found in verse 35. So go back chapter 9 and verse 35. Let me remind you of this. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So on their journey, as they're together, he's pressing this principle on them in a number of ways, and that certainly applies to how we approach marriage. And in chapter 10 and verse 1, we see them continuing on their journey. Look there with me. They're in Capernaum, and it says, And he left there, Capernaum, right around the Sea of Galilee, and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Okay, so what is this talking about? Here's a map. You probably can't see real clearly. There's a top blue arrow, which is Capernaum, right around the Sea of Galilee, There's a handy red arrow that tells you about where they went. The Jordan River goes between those two bodies of water. And then Jerusalem is south where that other blue arrow is. And so they actually went on the other side of the Jordan and went south. And this would have been a a pretty common uh, trajectory for people, for Jews during this day to take. They would have traveled this way often going from Galilee to Jerusalem. And so obviously at this point, Jesus's ministry is known to people. And so you can see in verse 1, crowds begin to gather. Look, look back there. They left there, went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And, as, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. So we've not seen this a lot on this journey. The focus has been primarily on the disciples, and Jesus has been instructing the disciples. But here, kind of the same old thing happens again. Crowds gather around him. But even in this public ministry that's taking place again, 
you're going to see in this chapter, the focus is on the disciples and making sure that they understand marriage and what that means for discipleship properly. Now, when you have crowds gathering around Jesus, you know that it's not just the common man who gathers. There's others with them. Look at verse 2. And Pharisees came up. And in order to test him, asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So we've seen this before. You're going to see it again. The Pharisees come up in chapter 7. The Pharisees were testing Jesus regarding the disciples and hand-washing. And here they come with the desire to test him again. Now, what, what does that mean, to test him? Well, what they're trying to do is to show him to be a fraud. They want to undermine his understanding of the Old Testament and undermine his ministry. And here they may even want to get him in trouble with the public, perhaps even with the government. When they ask this question here, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Keep in mind that this very area where they're asking this is where John the Baptist did his ministry. And you remember what happened to John the Baptist. He spoke out publicly against Herod's wife's divorce to marry Herod, and he ended up losing his head over that. And so we don't know that that's what the Pharisees are trying to do here, but it actually would make sense. They're trying to put Jesus to the test here to get him in trouble and do away with him. Whatever the motivation, we need to think carefully about their question here, and we need to think about the understanding of divorce and and remarriage or marriage in this day. We need to think about the debate that was going on so that you can understand the terms of what's happening here. So during Jesus's day, there were kind of two major positions on divorce amongst the Jews. There were two schools of teaching. And one of these schools of teaching, the more conservative school taught that based on the Old Testament, that divorce and remarriage was only permissible if there was adultery involved. So that was the exception, and that allowed you to divorce, and then you could get remarried, and it was okay in God's eyes if that happened. That is not the view that the Pharisees held to. The second view, which is what they held to, was the more common view. This was, this was more normal. In fact, nearly everyone believed this view of remarriage or of divorce and remarriage. And this view was that a man could divorce his wife for basically any reason. Anything that he did not like about her could lead him to divorce her. And there's even, you know, there's even cases of a rabbi's teaching that a man could divorce his wife if she burnt the meal and it wasn't acceptable to him. Then he could, he could cast her aside and he could divorce her. As long as he wrote a divorce certificate, he was good, he could do that. So that's kind of the cultural background of what's happening here. So everyone believed that in some way it was lawful for a man to be able to divorce his wife. And so I think this question here, the intention of it is probably coming from the Pharisees with their belief. It's probably something like this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Can he do it in the way we believe it's okay for him to do for any reason? Jesus answers. Look at verse three. He answered them, what did Moses, notice how he says here, command you. So he takes them back to the Old Testament, to the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books that Moses wrote, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They would have held those in high esteem. And he asked them, what does Moses command you? But look how they respond. Verse four, they said, Moses allowed. And you can see the difference there between 
placing the emphasis on what Moses commands you regarding marriage and divorce and what Moses allows there. They turn the attention to on what he allows. Now, this is pretty typical of the Pharisees. We've seen this before. They're always looking for a loophole, aren't they? They're always reading the Old Testament and trying to find a way to justify whatever it is that they want to do at the moment. So even in their asking this question, they're trying to justify themselves and justify their perspective and get to do what they want to do anyway in the first place. Now, their response here in verse 4, let me read it again. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. That's taken from Deuteronomy chapter 24. If you want to turn there, that's fine, but I'm going to put it on the screen and I'm going to read it to you, okay? Now, there's a lot that could be said about this passage. This is a doozy, all right? But I want you to notice a couple things. Let me read it to you and then I'll explain. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her... And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife again or his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Okay, so there's a lot happening here. But in the first section of this, the first three verses, Moses keeps using the word if. And there's a reason he does that. He's, He's responding to a situation that has already happened. People were divorcing their wives. Men were doing this. And so he's responding to that situation that has already occurred. This passage is not giving the legal ground for divorce. It's not outlining the entire Old Testament perspective on marriage and divorce. Verse 4, the end of this, gives the command there that the man may not marry her again. That's really the crux of this. It's in light of this situation that's already occurring A man who's divorced his wife needs to write her a very clear certificate, explain why he's divorcing her, and then he can't go back and claim that he needs to remarry her again. That's not acceptable. He can't take her back from her new husband. And the reason that I think Moses does this and that God ultimately inspires this is to protect the woman here in a lot of ways. She can't just be sort of tossed around and passed from man to man and marriage to marriage. There's actually a law here that regulates how this is going to be done. And so when you read this passage, this is hardly outlining the full biblical perspective on marriage and on divorce. And Jesus explains why Moses gave this passage. Look back in Mark 10, if you turn to Deuteronomy, and in verse 5, Jesus tells us, why did Moses have to do this? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. This is the real reason why Deuteronomy 24 is necessary. And this really gets to the heart of why all divorce happens in our world. Hardness of heart, we've seen before in the Gospel of Mark. Hardness of heart is something that is about your relationship to God. You 
Your heart is is stony. God can't penetrate. You're not listening to his word and his will. You have steeled yourself against that and you don't want anything to do with it. You're not listening to him. And so it's because people aren't listening to God and they're doing what God did not intend to happen that Moses had to give this law and has to try to regulate this. And so Jesus is saying here, divorce is not God's design for marriage. This is not his ideal. And the Pharisees were sort of treating marriage like a cell phone contract. You could jump into it, stick with it for a year or two, and then with minimal difficulty, get out of that contract and get into a different one with a different cell phone without too much inconvenience. I mean, that's the way they're understanding marriage. That's the way they're, they're thinking of it. Now, when you think about the Pharisees understanding of marriage, and then you fast forward to our time, our culture, as most human cultures do, consistently devalues marriage. There's a different perspective from the biblical perspective on marriage. I mean, you can look at the statistics in our culture, right? More marriages are ending in divorce. That's certainly true. But young people today are far less interested in marriage. They're delaying getting married. They're they're not interested in it. They're living together before they're married, and they don't see the importance of marriage. And again, if you and I are not going to great lengths to let the Bible dictate our perspective on marriage and then subsequently on divorce, then the culture will. We will subtly, incrementally adopt the cultural perspective on marriage. And we'll go down this path of thinking of it like a cell phone contract. So how should disciples of Jesus think about marriage? Well, Christ tells us in the next few verses. So disciples recognize the reason for divorce. And the second conviction is that disciples believe they cling to the truth about marriage. And this is found in verses 6 through 9. Look how Jesus begins verse 6. But. And what he's doing is he's contrasting the Pharisees' inadequate view of marriage with the biblical perspective of marriage. They were basing everything on this concession that Moses was giving because of hardness of heart. They were building an entire system around that interpretation of that passage. And Jesus says, in contrast to that, now I'm going to explain to you the biblical understanding, God's intention for marriage. And to do this, explain God's design, he roots everything in creation in the way things began before the fall. Look at verse 6. But from the beginning of creation. This is how things were originally designed. This is how God intends them to be. And to do this, to try to make this easy to understand, he teaches three truths about marriage in verses 6 through 9. Now, these aren't on the screen. I didn't want to get too much into all the sub points and everything. But I'll give you these three truths that Jesus teaches about marriage. First of all, being male and female is part of our identity as image bearers of God. You can see this in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. You know where that's from. It's from Genesis 1.27, the creation of man and woman. This is the high point of the creation week. Everything leads up to this day, day 6. Where man is created in the image of God. Everything pauses in the creation account. 
It's repetition and repetition and repetition. And then all of a sudden, let us make man in our image, male and female. We are, as human beings, the high point of creation. We are to be reflections of God. We are to represent him, to image him. Adam and Eve were to do that as they took dominion over God's good world and cultivated the world and made it a place that is conducive for human flourishing and well-being and for other image bearers to properly represent God by caring for the earth and worshiping him. And part of reflecting God and imaging him and fulfilling his plans for us as human beings is being made male and female. Being gendered is a way to describe it here. Being gendered is fundamental to our identity. It's part of who you are, basically. This is why this current trend of viewing gender as a cultural construct, something that's in your mind, And not as God has intended to create you in your DNA, in all that you are, being a male or female. That's why that current trend is so unsettling and so damaging to people. It's not just the Bible teaches it's wrong. That's true, but it is damaging to people because God has created us this way in order to reflect him and to image him and to live before him. God created each person in this room as either male or female, and both genders together gloriously represent him, reflect him, and showcase who he is. They are equal in God's eyes as they do that. And to deny that reality, to try to mess with and tamper with that reality, is to tamper with the basic building blocks of who we are as human beings. And things get messy real quickly when you do that. So the first truth that he teaches about marriage that we have to understand is that we are made in God's image as male and female. We are gendered. The second one is that God designed marriage as a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. Look at verse 7. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. God designed marriage as a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. So because we're made male and female in God's image, both genders there, we are designed for this marriage relationship. This quote here is from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Before the fall, God institutes marriage between the man and the woman. Now, this doesn't mean if you're single here today that you aren't properly reflecting God's glory and properly bearing image to God. It doesn't mean you're not fully living to your potential. Not at all. Scripture has many, many things to say about single people. And the Bible honors singleness. And as a church, we should too. You're not a lesser person and you're not a lesser church member or a lesser part of the body of Christ because you're single. But God's design is for one man and one woman when they come together to leave their parents to come together in covenant union and to commit to one another to become one flesh permanently. That's his design. Now, I've used the word covenant here several times, and I do that intentionally. And we have to understand marriage as a covenant. Why do I say it's a covenant? Well, in verse 7, it says, The man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cling to his wife. 
That's covenantal language. That, that same word is used several other times in the book of Deuteronomy to talk about the covenant between God and his people Israel. So that's covenantal language. And Christians have taught throughout the centuries that marriage is a covenant. Now, what does that mean, a covenant? It's a nice word. It sounds dramatic. But what, why does the Bible, why do we insist on saying marriage is a covenant here? A covenant is different from a contract. In our capitalistic culture, we're very familiar with a contract, aren't we? A contract is something you enter into most of the time for your own benefit, and you receive payment as you enter into that, or you provide goods or services and get your payment for that. You basically, in a contract, have to uphold your end of the bargain, and you sign a contract to make that happen. But it's for your benefit that you enter into that primarily. A covenant is a binding commitment. It provides obligation for the good of the other person. You enter into this binding commitment. You oblige yourself to live for the good of the other person. That's what marriage is. And so in a covenant relationship in marriage, the two come together and literally become one. So they no longer live for themselves in distinction from the other person, but for the good of the other person in this relationship. And then the third truth about marriage is that Jesus teaches here that this covenant does not come about by man's effort. Look at verse the rest of verse 8 and verse 9. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God makes the two one. It's not just that they shouldn't separate. In God's eyes, this covenant cannot be undone because he has created it. And so because of these truths about marriage, disciples believe these truths about marriage, then we have to purpose in our hearts to live according to these plans for marriage. And that's the third truth after those Genesis passages. Disciples pursue God's plan for marriage. And this is in verses 10 through 12. So Jesus has been explaining this publicly. The disciples have obviously heard this. And as we've seen multiple times in the Gospel of Mark, they go back to a house and they ask him, okay, what's going on here? Look at verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. Why? Why do you think they ask? I mean, it seems pretty clear here. Well, we don't know specifically, but I imagine that they ask because Jesus's answer was shocking to them in some way. It's hard to understand because it was so different than what they'd heard. They were used to hearing taught and used to probably believing that divorce could be arranged for almost any minor disagreement. And Jesus has painted marriage as this profound, permanent relationship, covenant established by God and ordered in our most fundamental identity of male and female and at creation. It's this huge thing that's vital to our lives as human beings, and they're hearing this. And so they require a little bit more further clarification. And Jesus gives it to them, verses 11 and 12. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, that seems really straightforward, right? That seems like there's very little wiggle room at all there. 
And so what do we typically do when we read this? What about the exceptions where God allows divorce? We ask that initially when we read this. And I understand. I get it. I know why that happens so quickly. Why that's one of the first things we ask. Well, there are exceptions elsewhere. So I mean, what is Jesus saying here? Is this like, does it have to be permanent? Is there never an option for divorce? Even no matter what happens, I mean, we go down that path and I get it. I know why we do that. And we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. But try to stay with me here in this text before we get to those exceptions. Because we need to let these very stark, very clear demands about marriage and the permanence of it sit on us for a couple of minutes. Because Jesus intends us to understand marriage as a very significant relationship and a covenant. And if you just read in verses 6 through 9 what Jesus teaches about marriage, then it actually makes sense what he says here. I mean, if we're following the flow and following the context, then these very demanding, very high statements actually make sense. I mean, if, if marriage is permanent, it's a covenant, it's a one flesh covenant established by God, put together by God, then divorcing your spouse for any reason and viewing marriage as a contract and as something you can move in and out of, then that results in adultery. And that's in direct violation of God's design for this institution. So what Jesus says in verses 11 and 12 makes sense. And keep in mind, the Pharisees are probably coming to this with the question, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason at all? So their view of marriage is so cheap and so shallow and so casual that remarriage without biblical cause means you're acting like the marriage is over when it's not here, according to Jesus, thus adultery. So before we talk about exceptions, let me just press this a little further. This needs to be the foundational understanding for believers of marriage. I mean, this is where we start. Are the demands high? Yes, they are high. Because there is no other relationship like marriage on earth. It's so important and so vital and so rooted in God's original design and creation And it's rooted, you'll see in Ephesians 5, of reflecting the relationship between Jesus and his church. And so there is a high view of marriage that we want to sustain and we want to hold to. We want to believe and live out. And in the flow of this passage on discipleship, marriage is that relationship where the opportunity to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus is so high and so consistent. And every single day it happens. And so it's vital to your walk with Christ to have this high view of marriage. And so this is the divine intention for the marriage relationship. And it's serious and it's good and it's a blessing ultimately to us. But of course, we live in a fallen world, don't we? We live in a fallen world where hardness of heart reigns in all of us. And so that doesn't excuse divorce, but the disciples' goal is to live, to live according to God's intentions. So if you zoom out, because we live in a fallen world, and you put this passage in the context of the whole of Scripture, there are exceptions to these very stark demands here that do allow for divorce, legitimate divorce. 
And if Jesus allowed for no divorce ever, I don't think he would be consistent with the Old Testament that teaches there are reasons for divorce to take place. Moses teaches that. So think of Mark 10 here. This is how I'm trying to think about this. Mark 10 is this very stark, very clear intention of God's purpose for marriage and divorce. And then think of passages like Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7. They give some exceptions as pastoral application to this, to specific circumstances, all right? Matthew 19, Jesus gives the exception that adultery can be the grounds for a legitimate divorce. 1 Corinthians 7, abandonment of one spouse of the other can be grounds for divorce. So there are exceptions, biblically speaking, but they're never God's ideal, are they? And I think that's what this passage makes clear. This is God's intention. This is his design for marriage and divorce. Now, I'm talking to people here who are looking at me this morning. Who so many of you have been impacted by divorce in some way. I know that. That's true everywhere. Maybe your parents got a divorce when you were a child. And so you have a deep understanding of how painful this can be. Maybe you have a divorce in your past for any number of reasons. And so as I've been preparing this this morning, I feel this tension and this weight of exalting marriage and saying this is God's ideal and this is good and this is what is to be pursued. And at the same time, being pastorally sensitive to those of you who have been hurt by divorce. And if you've been through this, if you've experienced this in your life, you you would be the first to raise your hand and say, this is not God's ideal. This is not what he intends. I see what you're saying. Marriage is to be exalted and divorce is not ideal. And I know that from firsthand experience. Many of you could say that. And so if that's true of you, how should you be feeling? Well, I think there's a really helpful word from Jesus in Mark chapter 3. That applies here. Mark chapter 3, verse 28. Talking about something completely different, Jesus makes this statement Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And he goes on to talk about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But that phrase there is so helpful. Forgiveness means that you and I are not dealt with based on our sins any longer in the eyes of God. Our sins have been wiped clean because we've repented, we've come to Christ, we've placed our faith and our hope in Him and in His work. And that doesn't mean there aren't temporal realities that that still happen because of whatever has happened in the past. But before God, we are forgiven for those sins. We live in a broken world, we are broken people. But Jesus specifically came to serve those who are broken by sacrificing himself on the cross for them and for their brokenness. That's why he came. He came for divorced people. People who divorce for reasons that don't match up to these exceptions here. He came for them. And so divorce does not make you unclean if you've come before Christ with it. Doesn't mean you're damaged goods at all. It means that you've experienced the brokenness that is in this world because of sin. And you need God's grace just like me. So if you're here this morning, you don't have any experience with this, then you're obviously a recipient of God's grace in significant ways. And I think your response to this is to take that vertical grace that you've been shown 
and then bend that outwards toward others who have been broken by this and who have experienced this and to show that grace toward them. And on the flip side, it's so important for all of us together to let our perspective be shaped by what Jesus says here. Marriage is a high calling. It's significant. We image God as we pursue this relationship. And so let's help one another with that perspective and hold that perspective high. And the last thing I'll say is, if you are married here this morning, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to go back and to think about your marriage as a covenant. It's not a contract. It's a covenant that God established when you were married, that he put in place. And it's an opportunity for you and I to go back and to think, if it's a covenant, then I exist. I've entered into this relationship for the good of my spouse, to see my spouse sanctified, to see my spouse grow to be more like Jesus Christ. I'm here to serve my spouse So go back and think about that and realize that because marriage is this high calling, this relationship that is fundamental to who we are as human beings and our lives in this world and our discipleship, then my marriage is something that requires my utmost attention. And I need to think of it as a covenant and I need to start living that out by God's grace. So if you're married this morning, this week, give yourself to thinking of ways to love and to serve and to help your spouse sacrificially for their good and for God's glory. Because that's what we ultimately enter into this marriage relationship in the first place. It's for God's glory. So let me pray and then we'll sing. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the truth that is there. We're thankful that we're not left to wander in the culture, the whims of men, what seems good and appropriate at the current time. But we have the rock solid foundation of your word. We have the truth about the work of Christ. We have your word on marriage, divorce, and what your ideal is. And we're so thankful for that. We pray that you would help us to Pursue the biblical perspective on this issue, on marriage, so that we can live out our walk with you, our pursuit of you as disciples, as you've intended for us. We thank you for your grace in the midst of our brokenness. We thank you for the forgiveness of Christ. We thank you for his work that we're celebrating as we go through the book of Mark. And we pray that you would apply all of these truths to our hearts, even this afternoon. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.